the story that we just saw, the story that is uh, told throughout Scripture, told all over the world this weekend, is true. We do not build monuments to our dead king. We build monuments to our risen Lord. Christianity uniquely stands among the religions of the world for that one truth. In the religions of the world are lots of folks honoring great ideas and great philosophy and great understanding, all of which the world should be thankful for. But you and I sit here today honoring our risen Lord. He is alive. The tomb is in fact empty. And he waits that moment when when the time is finally fulfilled. When the last yes from the last person who hangs on and waits is said. And then the clouds appear. And the heavens roll back like a scroll. And the living Savior comes to this little blue dot to take his children home. What are the things that best commemorate that event? They're around us. The cross. It's funny that an item of death has become a symbol of life. Life because of death. I wonder if any of you moms and dads out there still have that first blanket. Do you have one? We have kept for 33, 4, I don't actually remember, years. Sorry, Justin, if you're watching. The ugliest green blanket you've ever seen. It was a quilt sewn together, pieced together, given to us when our son was born. It was never our intention to be the blanket. But our son decided it was the blanket. And you know how that happens. Your baby decides. Do you still have yours? I wonder what Mary kept. Was it the blanket? In Christianity, there's a long historical reference. Not sure I buy it, 
that somebody kept the grave clothes. That someone brought it back to that place, to that room. And that Christianity hung on to it. That the last things wrapped round Jesus' body, like the first thing, perhaps, were kept. The story of Jesus is told in lots of ways. It can be told through those cloths. It's told in the scripture in long biographical sketches, which we're all pretty familiar with. Even people who are not Christians are fairly familiar with that biographical sketch of the last days and hours of Jesus' life. It's told in the book of Philippians in chapter 2 in just a few lines. And it's not just told in the most biographical way. It's told in an extremely theological way. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writing to the Philippians, trying to establish faith in them that will carry forward, trying to give them some something to hold on to, to try to give them some values and some philosophy and some theology that will carry them on. All of these apostles and disciples, all of these folks who are writing, they all come to recognize that there will be a day when they're not there to tell the story anymore. And they try to give the people something to hang on to, to understand, to filter this through, to clarify what they've just discovered, to clarify what it means to be a Jesus follower. And Paul in the Philippians letter in chapter 2 He said, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. You can see he's immediately addressing the way they respond to Christ. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. It's a simple way for Paul to say he was God. He was like God. He was so much the same as God that it would not be at all an offense for him to claim to be God. But made himself, get the word made himself, that phrase is very important, made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Now you need to understand who the bondservant is. Lift up your hand. Look at your hand. That's the hand of the bondservant. Got it? Good. Making himself in the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of mankind. Coming in the likeness of men. You know the story. It's the other part of the story everybody knows. Mary and Joseph called to Bethlehem, right? Taxes, present then, present now, taxes, brought them to Bethlehem. They came to the Bethlehem H&R block to turn in their taxes. It was a long journey, and when they got there, there were no rooms for them because a lot of other people had come there to pay their taxes. There were lines out H&R block onto the sidewalk and around the corner, and 
There was somebody there wearing a liberty uh, costume trying to get them into a different tax preparer. And they ended up staying in an inn. Kind of. It was really not the inn proper. It was an ancillary building. It was a secondary add-on. It was really a barn. It's not said much to kids anymore, but when we left the door open in my house, the the, the, the words that rung out across the house were, Close the door. Were you born in a barn? Didn't realize that that was a compliment. And the Bible says that when her time had fully come, she brought forth a son and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes are interesting. It's basically torn up old rags. When dad's shirt wears out, you make baby clothes out of it. And you cut it up and you wrap it around him. And that's his first clothes. I suppose it was easy. Cloth diapers were a problem. Pampers weren't invented yet. These were easy to change. And she laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. When Paul is telling the story to the Philippians, he continues, he came in the form of a man, humbled, though God chose to look like us. It says, being found in the appearance of a man. Paul's trying to make it clear that he wasn't actually just another man. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient. You know, we we can get a little hung up on this. Jesus became obedient. Well, if Jesus had your nature... How do you do with obedience? Is it a difficulty? Well, Jesus became obedient. He took on human nature. And as he took on human nature, that nature had to be brought into alignment with God. And Jesus became obedient. We all struggle with obedience to rules. Jesus became in alignment with the plan. Jesus' obedience was much bigger and much deeper and much harder and would cost him much more. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this thing, this symbolic thing to us was a very real thing to the Philippian church. They understood obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross, to mean this extremely painful, slow, and 
anxious death. And deep within the Philippian soul was a recognition of the cost that Jesus paid. Because the Philippians had seen this happen on the streets of their own town. See, criminals weren't killed in a place in a back room where no one saw. They were killed on a main street where everyone walked by intentionally as a warning to the next person who might disobey the Romans. The cross was not a theoretical thing or a historical fact to them. It was a live action representation of the depths to which Jesus would go to rescue them. It's interesting how Cloth keeps appearing in the story. When Jesus is on the cross, the people assigned to kill him take his clothes. Seems kind of weird. But when there is no Macy's, not even a Walmart or a Target to go get a shirt. They're much harder to come by. And so the opportunity to take clothes in the Bible is oft repeated. Many, many, many times in the descriptions of the, of the booty, of the things captured from a war, it will say, and... 20 full outfits. And you think, okay. When people rob your house, when they rob a house today, they don't steal your clothes. Because they're easy to come by. But in first century Roman culture, clothes were very expensive. And so those assigned to kill Jesus gathered round the foot of the cross while these three men are dying, decide to divide up the man's clothes. They took him to the place called Golgotha. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots, think rolling dice for them, to determine what every man should take. And clothes keep coming up. They found that his robe had been woven out of, into a, a, from a single piece. And so they decided not to tear it and share it. They decided to roll the dice and whoever got the best roll got to take it home. And so there was this robe that some Roman got and took it home crazy. Some guy went home that day with the clothes of Jesus. Finished his day's work. Hi, honey, I'm home. How was your day? Oh, you know, the usual stuff. Crucifying people. 
mayhem. You know, the regular day. Oh, but one of the guys had a really nice robe. Brought it home. Oh, can I see it? Oh, sure. Look. Woven out of a single piece of cloth. Isn't it cool? Yeah, I, I rolled double sixes. Calling it my 12 robe. Some guy went home with Jesus' robe. The day had gone from nine in the morning until the sun began to set. And when the evening was come, the sun's not set quite yet. Remember, they were trying to get these guys off the cross before the Sabbath began. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded that the body be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it. And here they are again. In strips of clean linen. We know from other places in the gospel that they put a hundred pounds of spices in the mix while they wrapped him. It's tradition in Judaism to wrap people of great importance in new, fresh, fine linen and mix within that linen a great deal of the best spices you could buy. And there they are. Two wealthy men. A little too scared to speak out for Jesus while he was alive. Finding their voice in his death. Wrapping him. Lifting him carefully into a new tomb, Joseph's tomb. Hewn out of the rock. It was close by, it was an obvious location. It was almost Sabbath, after all, and there was a lot to be done. They placed him in the tomb. Rolled a large stone against the door. And they left. Jesus went from a cave in Bethlehem. 33 years later, he ends up in a cave in Jerusalem. He was wrapped in strips of cloth at his birth. 
And now he's wrapped in strips of cloth at his death. The Bible weaves a very beautiful, very tight tapestry of overlapping ideas so that as we follow the the theology and the creativity and the discovery layer the story in our minds. And Jesus lay there in the tomb for a little while. It was a borrowed tomb. Jesus was really just couch surfing. He had no intention of staying. He was just here for a while, just passing through. Three days later, on the first day of the week, the the person who probably got Jesus the most sideways glances among all of those who followed him. You know, Jesus had wealthy people who followed him. He had upstanding people who followed him. He had his disciples, just kind of the blue-collar bunch, who followed him. And then he had this prostitute. The reputation was pretty well known. She was apparently from Bethany right there near Jerusalem. People knew this guy, this girl's story. She just kept hanging around. And what's crazier is he didn't seem to mind. The Bible records conversations with her that happen regularly and he doesn't seem to mind. He didn't drag one of the disciples over for each conversation saying, listen, if I'm going to talk to this woman, you need to stand right there. Make sure you keep, keep good track of everything. She says, or I say. Early on Sunday morning, she and one of the many Marys in the story. Are the Marys confusing to you? The Marys get a little confusing to me. This is Mary, the mother of Joseph. Put her pieces all together. She's the wife of Cleopas. She and Mary Magdalene show up. Mary, Mary. They get there to the the tomb at the beginning. It's still dark when they've come. In fact, they've come to finish what was started that Friday. And they saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. Because... He was just borrowing it. That stone was just going to be in the way. She ran back. And as we tried to help you see, she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple. John never names himself in his book. Whom Jesus loved and And said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. 
Peter, being Peter, jumped up and ran out. The other disciple with him. They were headed for the tomb. They both ran. And just so you know, John 1. When they arrived at the tomb, John poked his head in. And again, the clothes. He poked his head in and and he saw the linen cloths lying there. Then Simon, Peter, following, catching up, all out of breath. You can describe him any way you want. Second, when he arrives, he pushes past John and goes inside. When he goes inside, what does he see? The clothes. And the piece that was around his head. Laying separate from the linen clothes. I have all kinds of, you know, I have a pretty good imagination and I always imagine these, these linen clothes just kind of collapsed on the, on top of themselves. You know, it's like there was something in here it got taken out and everything just, it deflated. And all that's left there were the, the linen wrappings and the spices. It's a lot of stuff. There's a hundred pounds of spices there. So there's lots of stuff laying there on the slab where Jesus had been. But apparently, someone folded the cloth that was on his face. Oh, there's a lot to be said here. Preachers could go on for an hour just on this one piece of cloth. But it was set aside. It was set Beside, but not with. And the clothes. The clothes keep coming back in the story. Folded. Placed over there by itself. The other disciple, John. He came to the tomb... Stopped after Peter broke through and went in, followed him. And I love what it says. And he saw linen clothes and that folded covering, and he believed. First time we hear it. First time we hear it in the story. No one else up to this point, and really no one until Jesus appears to them fully gets to this. But John just sees the clothes and he believes. The story carries on. They go back and they tell everybody what's going on and some believe and or some are, are taking it in. Nobody's really buying it yet. Jesus will later chastise them for not believing. Mary's still there, still hanging around Jesus. She talks to him. 
She thinks he's the gardener. She thinks the angels are the gardener. Apparently she's expecting a gardener. But as soon as Jesus speaks her name, the Bible says, she says, Rabboni or teacher. She runs to him. She grabs hold of him, apparently. Could you imagine what your first response would have been at that moment? It's so easy to read the pages and not let your imagination work. But could you imagine the linen cloth laying there, that folded head covering laying there, Peter and John have been there and they've gone and now you're coming. You're there by yourself and you see a couple of angels whom you think are gardeners. Those glowing gardeners are a dime a dozen apparently. And then this other guy who's a, who appears to be a gardener to you says your name. And when Jesus says your name, you immediately know who it is. She runs and she grabs him. Would you have done that? Would you have grabbed him and hugged him? I think I might have, but I'm kind of a huggy person. As those of you who are not especially are aware of. And Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So, I have not yet gone back to see God. I've been waiting to talk to you. Now, let go. I'm going. I'm leaving him out. And we know he does this a couple of different times. This is not the first time, or not the only time he does it. But this is the first time. He says, I've not yet been to my father and I'm going. Go tell these guys. That's where I'm going. Go tell them. And this is apparently when he says, or especially talk to Peter. Because Peter's, you know, he's heartbroken. He's blown up by this whole thing. And Jesus is concerned when our hearts are broken and when the events of our decisions have left us broken and blown up. Go make sure you talk to Peter because he really needs to hear that his denial didn't cause this. It's okay. The really, the next scene is not in the Gospels. It's not recorded in the book of Acts or in any of the letters, the epistles. It is, it is described or implied in Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God, after Jesus had given his life, has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every Knee should bow of those in heaven and those in earth and those under the earth. At the name of Jesus, who being so highly exalted, everyone in the universe hits their knees when they hear about it. Exalted to that place in that moment, this coronation moment is not seen until you get to the revelation. The last book of the Bible, written also by John, written as a description of who Jesus is post-resurrection, of what the impact of Jesus' life is on the planet, not just on Jews, not just on Jerusalem, not just on you, but on the planet. It's in Revelation chapter 5. 
I love the picture. It's this moment in the book of Revelation where we've seen the glory of God in this grand throne room. We've seen that God is surrounded by four living creatures who out of their heart, out of their response, out of being so close to God, cry, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come over and over and over again. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the 24 elders standing around, wrapped in white robes, white robes which represent the righteousness of Christ, wrapped in white robes, throw off their crowns and fall on their knees. A scroll is brought and no one can open it. John begins to weep. And he's told, don't worry. Relax. We have this. And I pick it up in verse 8. When they had taken the scroll, when he had taken the scroll, Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And you were, you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God for we shall, and we shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. And the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands saying with a loud verse, voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And as if that were not enough, as if he's directly quoting Paul. And every creature which is in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen! And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. Clothes, cloths, Robes. All of this so that you and I might be wrapped in a robe of white, made white by the blood of Jesus, in a robe of His righteousness, bought for us on a cross like that, given to us. By the authority of his resurrection and coronation. The Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world so that you and I might not be responsible for what we've done. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is And is to come. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord 
God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are worthy because we are in fact unworthy. We had no chance without you. There was no way that any of us could have gotten there on our own. Lord, wash that idea out of our mind, please. We fall down before you like those 24 elders. Recognizing that it is ours to surrender. To lay our sins at your feet. And it is yours to take them up. Wrap yourself in the bloody cloak of your death. 